From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to the two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. Coming to you via Zoom, as we have been for almost the last three years now. This is Cade Massey hosting with the whole crew. Eric Bradlow's here. Shane Jensen's here. Audie Weiner is here and will be for most of the show. This is the first show of 2023. Happy New Year to you. Happy 23. Good to see the team. We've been away for a couple of weeks. So it's been three weeks since we've done a show. Not We don't usually get that kind of break. We've got a, a full show here. We are at the end of the college football season. We're at the tight squeeze at the end of the regular season for NFL. We've got NBA action. We've got NHL action. There's lots to talk about. We're going to format the show thusly. We will have open lines, open topics in Q1 and Q4, and we'll have interviews in Q2 and Q3. This is our old school format. Maybe we'll go back to this. We don't know. But for this week, we're doing interviews in the middle segments. We've got Bill Connolly lined up for Q2. going to talk about college football in advance of the final a week from last night. And we have, who do we have? We have Kevin Cole. Kevin Cole is our Q3 guest talking about professional football. Fantastic analyst. Talk, get us up to speed on what's going on around the world of the NFL. In this segment, gentlemen, we are just open, and I am curious. We're going to find out what is caught your eye in the world of sports. Well, I mean, I guess I'll, I'll kind of uh, so the one sort of non-football-related kind of sport that I watched uh, over over the holiday break was hockey, and you know we had the Winter Classic actually just a few days ago. Uh, the Bruins won. In a shocking turn of events, the Bruins beat the Pittsburgh uh, back, uh, Penguins in Fenway Park. It was a very cool setting for a hockey game. Uh, but, I, you know, that's kind of like the intro to me commenting that we are now almost a halfway through the season. And the Boston Bruins are still on a historically unprecedented rate of winning. I think I looked at their 29-4-4, and four, right? 29-4-4. 20... Four four. So they're wow. on, they're on See, pace, right, for over 130 points. Yeah, 60, oh, and over 64 wins, which we've never seen before. Um, so wow. that, you know, if they keep up this pace, it's the greatest regular season we've ever seen, essentially. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty impressive. I mean, they, you know, they, you, they've, they're not necessarily even the hottest team in hockey right now. The Carolina, uh, Carolina Hurricanes have won 11 in a row. Um, and you see streaks like that during a hockey season, just like in the NBA, you see streaks like that. But this, what the Bruins are doing, they, I mean, obviously they've only lost four times in like 37 games. They've had no off periods. So, so and, Shane, you know, the two natural follow-up questions are, so let's pretend it was halfway. This is three games before halfway, but how much would you shrink them back for the second half of the season? And secondly, if the playoffs started right now, they're obviously the top seed. Would you, do more than your coin flipping model or are they still one out of 16? Yeah. I mean, I would be, you, you know, of all the teams to kind of, you know, depart from the coin flip model, this would be them though. I mean, you know, if they were to kind of get to 64 wins or 63 wins, the team they'd be passing that currently has the record for wins in the season is the Tampa Bay lightning that then bombed out in the first round. So would you, go up, would you go up to 10% instead of one out of 16? Like, would you be willing to give them double the probability of an average team? I'm just wondering how high would you go? Triple? 20%? No, that's no, way too high. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe. I, I, maybe double. Maybe double. 
Yeah, one out of eight instead of one out of six. What does that say about the sport, Shane? If the best team of all time in winning percentage is only a 10% chance best of Best regular season team yeah, of all time. regular season, yeah. I mean, that's a very, I mean, stochastic, that's a very stochastic sport in the playoffs. I, I mean, how often does the team with the best record in uh, Major League Baseball win the World Series? Yeah, but that, we're talking about historically best team, not the, not just the ordinary best team. But okay, how, how often does the uh, historic how, – how, you know, I, I'd have to look at the, like, you know – Usually. Uh, I mean, the, the Seattle Mariners, of course – The Seattle Mariners, whenever that was in 2000, and, uh, right. were obviously is the most glaring example. Uh, but yeah. usually they do. I mean, the first – I think about the seven or eight best teams ever. Well, we, we, know, we, we know hockey's stochastic. We yeah. know it's I, yeah, the most stochastic. The main statement is that model. I mean, all sports playoffs are stochastic. Hockey's, I think, is the most stochastic. I think that's always been certainly certainly something I've, I've, I've kind of bought into. You know, basketball is probably the least stochastic, right? Yeah. Because, you know, it's – or the least, most prone to go kind of chalk. I, I think also, I mean, well, I know in one way, Zadi, I could criticize the sport for it. In another way, you could say it's the exciting part of the sport that on, you know, any given game, certainly there's a lot of variation. But even at the series level, there's a lot of variation. Um, yeah, and I know, mean, it's, it's a product it makes the, just of it the, makes game. the It makes the play, all I'll say is it makes the playoffs more exciting. It makes, like, once you've hit a certain threshold in the regular season, I'm not sure there's a lot of diagnosticity between a 100-point team and a 110-point team. I think between an 85-point team that sneaks into the playoffs and a 120-point team, yeah, there's yeah. diagnosticity. But I don't think a small perturbation in the number of wins plays a huge role in predicting playoff success. Right, and I think that's probably right. – go ahead, Kerry. If you were going to point us to a team to take a look at, and as as we kind of drag our eyes reluctantly away from the football world and warm to these winter sports, hockey is one of the alternatives. What storylines or players or teams, obviously the Bruins, the, the way they've opened the mm-hmm. season, are there storylines or players that you think we should keep our eyes open for? Yeah, well, I mean, honestly, one thing to kind of keep our eyes on, I mean, it's it's perhaps not the – I mean – Obviously, watch Connor McDavid whenever we've got an opportunity because he's kind of this, you know, our, our kind of the best, you know, currently kind of the best player in, in hockey. Um, so in terms of like the next, you know, the kind of current generation, I think. McDavid is Vancouver, Vancouver, right? Do I have that right? Oh, Edmonton. He plays for Edmonton. Edmonton. I, 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 I was Edmonton, close. Of I course, geographically has close. into two of the two of the like top 10 players ever to play the game. But anyway, whatever. Um no That's a there. hostile Calgary view yeah. from the Calgary Edmonton but, rivalry. But one thing I think it's, Calgary knocked like David didn't Calgary knock McDavid out last year in the no, playoffs? No, they, they, yeah, they Calgary won. out. Wow, the bitterness. He, he, the I mean, bitterness. yeah, well, well, I mean, I mean, or just it's 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 a matter of life that Edmonton will beat Calgary. Um, but I think okay, you know, so, kind of so McDavid, so that, McDavid, and also keep an eye on Cros- Sidney Crosby versus Ovechkin. I mean, both. I, I find their careers so fascinating and they're still playing at a high level They're, I mean, obviously they're kind of, you know, the former generation, but I, you know, if you have a look at their numbers, it's incredible how close their careers are just in terms of the kind of cumulative stats. Crosby's played for, you know, is, is 35. He's, he, he was selected first overall in 2005. Ovechkin selected first overall in 2004. So they're only a season apart in terms of when they started. Crosby mm-hmm. has 1,452 points in his career. Ovechkin, 1,455. That's crazy. You know, right? That's I mean, crazy. they basically are right on top of each other. But 
even yeah, and this sort of shows that you know you can't just go by point totals necessarily because they have very different styles of games. Crosby is much more like you know Wayne Gretzky was, where he's you know like kind of a, a finesse, like you know his assists are twice as many as his goals. Whereas Ovechkin uh-huh. is like you know much more focused on goal scoring, less on passing, but is also a bruiser. Like he's one of the first. You know, I mean, the fact that he's doing this and is kind of one of the tough guys of the sport is is also impressive. So I mean they have incredibly different styles of play, but yet have somehow had these like this sort of lockstep careers and they're still playing at an incredibly high level. I mean, Ovechkin right. has, you know, you know, I mean, McDavid uh, just for, for comparison so far this season, McDavid has, you know, like 72 points, 32 goals. Ovechkin has 26 goals. He's all, almost keeping up with Connor McDavid in terms of goal scoring. And he's like in his like, you know, mid thirties now. Uh, Crosby, mm-hmm. you know, also is, is like, I mean, not quite as high, you know, both Ovechkin and Crosby this season, Crosby has 43 points. Ovechkin has 45. I mean, it's, I, I don't, I don't That's know. Crazy. These two, these two uh, players, even though they have such different styles have kind of see, seemingly like seem to just kind of be lockstep in terms of uh, their cumulative stats. Do you think age curves in hockey are different than in other sports, Shane? Cause you keep, you know, I'm just saying, I mean, it seems like we're getting late, more late thirties players in hockey. In one sense though, hockey, right. Is a short burst sport. Yeah. And so in some sense, maybe, you know, I've always said, you know, uh, let's take LeBron James, although he's having a great season. Now LeBron James can be the old LeBron James. He just can't do it for 48 minutes. Maybe a hockey player, Sidney Crosby can be great for six minutes of ice time, 10 minutes of ice time, where normally in his younger days, he would have been great for 20 minutes of ice time. No, and I mean, I think certainly players are playing later into their careers than they used to. And I think part of that is, of course, just, you know, you know, advances in, in medicine, medicine, training, all the type of stuff that we see across all the sports. But I do think hockey is a situation like basketball where you can't, you know, players' careers can be extended through like load management. You know, and we see it in baseball, too. We, you know, we have this designated hitter position that people can transition into and manage their load as well. But I think hockey and basketball you can be thoughtful and I think somebody like Crosby or Ovechkin can have a tremendous impact you know even though they can't necessarily play the minutes that they used to and you'll sort of see probably similar to LeBron as the playoffs start approaching assuming that they're kind of in 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 a good position playoff wise you'll probably sort of see them trying to save a lot of their kind of energy for the playoffs well, one last note on hockey. On the other end of the age curve, there is a prospect coming up in this year's draft that oh. is supposed to be the best prospect since Crosby, for example, oh in 05 yeah, yeah. or McDavid. Yeah, you know, he, I mean, so people are comparing. He, 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 you know, people are calling him the best prospect since Sidney Crosby, basically. Um, okay. And he, he, I mean, he's been absolutely incredible. He, I think he scored, he's, uh, the World Juniors are going on right now and he's playing for Team Canada. It's kind of the top sort of, it's, you know, the Olympics of like, you know, like junior, junior so, hockey players. So give me a sense, Shane, how you would put it. So we've, we've talked about this a bunch in the show, but I don't know if you've ever included hockey. So let's say I said, you know, you're the top pick in the NFL draft and you're the best in the last couple of years. And people would say, all right, but you know, I know there's been a lot of top draft picks that haven't succeeded yeah. in the NBA. The the one pick though is typically unique. The number one pick failing, even in, I guess the NFL draft might be the, maybe the greatest, but like the NFL, the NBA hasn't failed that much. Yeah. Where would you put Connor Bedard as his name? So he's the kind of person who at least people are viewing him as the sure enough bet for success that a te- teams are are actively looking to tank for him. And I mean, tanking in the NHL, it's a lottery similar to the NBA. So it's not like you get, you know, there's no guarantees to getting him. 
but he, he you know i think he would be the like kind of the andrew luck sort of pick yeah, where, that's, where, that's where where teams are actively gonna, that's kind of taking him like him well, Connor than- mcdavid Sidney crosby of the last you know uh, maybe ovechkin these are kind of the people that he's being compared to I mean, they, they win number it, one and I, were sure bets essentially the only the the only comparisons that what, who do you think of as being the the supposed most surefire number one picks in the NFL in our adult life? I think of Peyton Manning and Andrew Luck, um, yeah. and um, just yeah, I think those are the, I think those are the two that really stand out to me. And, I, and I'm what I'm hearing on Bedard is that it's that level of uh, singularity, yeah. which is kind of generational, I suppose. Yeah, no, um, that's kind of the word that is often used. I mean, in the NHL, it's similar. I, I think you know, a big David, I think probably qualifies as this but people are using Crosby even more so because again back back when Crosby was coming up as a prospect you know there was no lottery it was just you know it was similarly like I think the the worst team automatically got the number one pick and the Penguins just absolutely tanked that season for Crosby because they had didn't they Yager was still playing for them when they drafted Crosby wasn't he and so how could they be that bad if they had Yammer Yager I don't think well they were I'm not sure when Yager actually moved off penguins I, i'd have to kind of think about that but they were bad for several and, and even uh um their their season after you know their season before crosby they were also uh quite bad because they got malkin at number two the year before and then crosby at number one the next year okay well and maybe course, i'm you know, confusing about mario lemuse from a yarmer yarger but i don't understand how that team was so bad it's a little bit like the indianapolis colts somehow ending up with both Peyton Manning yeah. and Andrew Luck. The yeah, no, I mean, they most... only needed one season to tank right there for the Colts, yeah. you know. All right. Well, we, we're, we're going to talk more professional football in Q3. We're going to talk a lot of college football in Q2. What other sports? I know that Adi mentioned that, look, there are some votes in. I've been seeing it on Twitter. Some Hall of Fame votes are in. This is a thing. What have we learned so far, Adi, and how much have we learned? We love to talk about it because it's the best statistical thing around. We get data as running into the Hall of Fame actual uh, ballots or release. So um, this is a great year because there's no obvious new candidates giving space for the ones that have been hanging around to move forward. Um, the best obvious new candidate for this year is not even obvious and is probably not going to get in. Uh, is Carlos Beltran, who's uh, hovering around 50 percent mark. Um, yeah. And so we probably won't have a first year, a, a first year um, eligible ballot inducted. How do you rem- yeah. r- remind remind us? My 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 vague memory is that first you first ballot Hall of Fame is a distinct category. And so most guys are made to wait. And most guys, yes. even but if you're usually in, they usually won, you know, there's usually every year there's usually there's often it's not infrequent that you get a first ballot Hall of Famer um, because it's not, the, it's not the usual way they go into the Hall of Fame. But, you know, there's you know, we could I could probably name at least five yeah, or six I mean, over the last 10 years. That have gone sure. It's plenty of them. And this year is an off year because there's no obvious candidate to even be a first rounder. and There probably won't be any. Um, and there's not there isn't anyone even in close in second place. Um, so, I mean, so what's going on is that the, the guys who've been kind of distant are now moving forward. So those include Todd Helton uh, and Scott Rowland, uh, principally. Those are the guys who are who are moving up um, and Andrew Jones. And they're really interesting. I mean, Andrew Jones is particularly interesting because he came up really young and he's uh, a great hitter, with, but an even better defender. 
um, and he's gathering momentum. We'll see whether he gets there. That's really the interesting part. Scott Rowland, you know, obviously a great, great hitter, a great defender. We'll see. I mean, I see Eric uh, shaking his head, not a Hall of Famer. No, I'm just, um, just going to be, I'm, you know, I'm going to be in Cooperstown. I'm going to see Fred McGriff and Scott Rowland or something. I'm like, wow, Jesus. This is, yeah, this yeah. And this so, is not uh, the year I'm looking for, but, you know, I'll yeah, still be A-Rod there. A-Rod is... You know, A Rod, who of course is just tainted by the by the the this, the performance enhancing drugs, is uh, is running in the in the mid forties right now. So he's probably not going to make it. I don't know if he ever will make it. And um, it's just a kind of kind of an off year. I mean, you got Todd Helton, who's obviously by the numbers fantastic, but when you shrink him back because he was in Colorado for so many years, and at DH, you're you're, you're like, eh, I don't know. Um, so it's Billy just, Wagner. I see Billy Wagner at seventy percent. Billy Wagner at seventy percent. Uh, yes, he is. He is at seventy percent. I, I missed him. He's at the end. I'm surprised personally. I mean, I don't think a reliever of that stature should make the Hall of Fame. Uh, meaning he's he's good, but he's and words of Mel Brooks, he's nice, not thrilling, but nice. <laughs> I, 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 at, at his peak, would you rather have had uh, Billy Wagner or Trevor Hoffman? <sighs> Uh, at his, you know, the thing about Either. Trevor Hoffman is, I, I don't think they're that different. Uh, Trevor Hoffman was longer, I think, right? Well, you know, I mean, Trevor Hoffman's in the Hall of Fame, right? Yes, I know, but he was longer, and that, and that no, gives- no, 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 no. I, 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 and I understand, you know, peak versus longevity. I mean, you know, for there, a, for, there a, a for a closer, a closer, you got to have it all, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not disagreeing, but you know, I think that's got to be that, long, Jeff. Yeah, be long and great, and and really long and great, because it's kind of an awkward position, right, to play in. So right now, right now, we're looking at Scott Rowland is leading the league there in terms of he's the only one over eighty percent. Everyone else is is either hovering at the mark or quite a bit lower. Lower. So Bobby, we'll people don't tend to go up over time, right? So isn't no, at the end don't. of the day, isn't isn't Scott Rowland the only one here that really has a shot? Um, it, yeah, uh, Todd Helton, maybe, I mean, the issues, the, the, what happens is the late undeclared ballots tend to go, um, against the steroids and they go against relievers and they typically go against Colorado and DHs. They're That's kind of I'm saying school, to me, right? Roland's the only one. So like, Roland is just, probably the only one. The only one. That would be something and to put a model on and make a forecast. Just a note going out from Matt back to the first part of this conversation of the 268 former major league players who are in the hall of fame 58 got there on the first ballot. So that's just over one out of five to the first ballot thing. I know. But if I told you the players from the twenties and thirties and that didn't get in on the first ballot, you'd be like that. You got to look, I think you got to separate it pre let's call it 1950. Yeah. They, they, they were making up, they were, they making were making up, up time for a while. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and so yeah, the real yeah, question yeah, sure. is also, I think, how many players we've been averaging a year for since uh, for the last 20, 30 years? Um, after you get, get over that backlog, it's about, what is it, about two a year that we've been averaging? Yeah, I would say. Um, and so it's, uh, I don't think we're seeing first rounders all that often, but um, it's but it's not even just a first rounder. I don't think this is a good class at all. I mean, look at the other first. Matt Cain, Ari Dickey, Jacob Ellsbury, John Lackey, Ma- Mike Napoli, Johnny Peralta, uh, Francisco Rodriguez, Hudson Street, Houston Street. Other than Carlos Beltran, there's nobody else who's ever going to make it. You might as well just erase them right now. <laughs> I agree. Okay. This is the worst ballot. This is the worst ballot I've seen in a long time. 
Yep. Guys, in the last couple of minutes, what do we need to be paying attention to in the NBA? Ask the same question we ask about the NHL. As we turn our eyes reluctantly to non-football sports, <laughs> give us a storyline. Well, give I'll say just three things since we NBA. three things that have caught my eye since we last. First, uh, the Nets may not lose again. They seem to have figured it out. They've won 12 straight, and they're winning convincingly. Second, Luka Doncic had a 60-point, 20-rebound triple-double, yeah, right. which I think the well, only that, other... And, and we know something about how rare that is, right? There's like well, one or two no, no, of all the triple-doubles. Of all the triple-doubles, there's only one other 60-point triple-double, not with 20 rebounds. That was James Harden in 2018. So this is only the second 60-point triple-double ever. And then last night, an, an amazing thing happened. Donovan Mitchell for the Cavs put up 71. The last time 70 was put up was Kobe in like double overtime. So it's putting up 71 in regulation is pretty impressive. I mean, that puts you in the top 10 scoring games. How how unexpected was that from Mitchell? I mean, given that 70 is always going to be unexpected. What about from that player in particular? He he's a great scorer. So I, I, if you asked me of the 10 top 10 players in the NBA that could put up 70, he'd be on my list. Okay. But he wouldn't be in the top okay. one or two. But because he just doesn't, he's a, actually not a selfish ball player. I wouldn't have guessed he would have taken enough shots to score 70 points. I see. Okay. Most interesting question in your mind for the balance of the NBA season? Um, can anyone challenge the Celtics and the Bucks in the East and in the West? Who the hell is it going to be given like literally 11 teams within five losses of each other? Okay. Okay. These are good. These are fun. These are good. All right. And the Warriors are on a short win streak, which is a relief after the way they open. So that's now when Curry thing. comes back, then we'll start to see if anyone can dethrone them. Exactly. All right. All right, guys. Well, that's been Q1. We still got three quarters to go. Y'all should come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to the second quarter of the first show of 2023. This is Cade Massey hosting this quarter with the whole crew. Shane Jensen is here. Audie Weiner's here. Eric Bradlow's here. I think everybody's broadcasting from their home. From It looks to me like everybody, including myself, this is rare. This might be one of the first times everyone is at home. Maybe that's because it's January 3rd. You guys can join the conversation in a way, and we wish that you would. We love hearing from you. Reach out to us on Twitter. Probably the best way to get just get us at W Moneyball. At W Moneyball is our handle there. We follow all of our guests, like the terrific gentleman we're about to spend time with, and we tweet about the world of sports up there at W Moneyball. You can also drop us email. We have a mail bag via email. That address is moneyball at wharton.upen.edu. Moneyball at wharton.upen.edu. We get interesting questions from people, suggested topics, elaborations. We love them all. We read them all. Love to hear from you. Please drop us a note. All right. We're going to do two interviews this show. We're going to do them in the middle segments, old school. This is how we used to do the show, open Q1, open Q4, and interviews in the middle. A gentleman who we had on a number of times when we were in that format is Bill Conley. Bill is one of our favorite guests in any sport. He is a go-to in the world of college football for a lot of folks, including us. We wanted to talk college football. Obviously, we've got one game left after all these months. One game between now and the long, cold winter on the other side. We want to talk about that and what got us here to do that. Bill is going to join and us. And the game we would have all predicted, Bill. right, Kate? Oh, yeah, exactly. TCU in the final. Chalky, chalky little 2022. Bill Conley, welcome to the show. 
Uh, it's it feels like it's been a while. I have no idea how long it's been. The last three, the last three, four, five months have been seventeen years, but we've made it so far, and one game to go. Hey, yeah, ESPN gets a lot of good value out of you, Bill. I mean, if, <laughs> if I if I was a fancy guy like you, I don't think I'd do anything. I just I just relish in the in the title and the profile. But you're working, you're writing all these articles every every week. They're long, they're thoughtful, they're well written, and then you go on TV. I mean, it's a lot of work they're getting out of you. And the soccer thing, like I, I'm not, they're not allowed to put another World Cup in in December, or late November, December. Um, <laughs> as cool as it was watching Missouri, Arkansas, and USA, England in the same day, never again. It just can't happen because that was ridiculous. <laughs> well, your problem is you actually like soccer, yeah. and so I mean, all of us, all of us enjoy. I mean, most of us enjoy the World Cup, but you're like kind of into it, and so it's pretty complicated for you to live your college football life while the most important event, sporting event, of the quadrennial. <laughs> whatever. Well, that was fun though, wasn't it? The World Cup was was great fun. I mean, and then my God, those last few matches were just, yeah. never mind the last one. Some of those semis were just, or were they quarters? It's just ridiculous how much fun that was. Yeah. And I got to, you know, um, Morocco, a lot, you know, with their whole anti-possession thing, I got to go down the, the road. I've gone down with football a few times and like, are we, are we changing here? Are things kind of evolving? Are we looking at a, a new way to play the sport and blah, blah, blah. I'm not sure really we learned much right. of anything, but um, it was interesting at the world cup. There was no correlation be- between possession, which is kind of what we've learned at the club level. Like that's all the best teams have crazy possession numbers. There was no correlation be- between possession and wins. Um, yeah. And that's kind of interesting. So we'll, we'll see if that means anything, but uh, you know, in the end a uh, reasonably decent player ended up headlining the the best team. The- <laughs> yeah, right. And and if he hadn't uh, another reasonably decent player would have, it's, it was kind that's of right. a story storybook in that way. But you, you know, we went on a bit of a soccer tutorial. We had three or four guests every week, every other week, just kind of taking advantage of the world cup to get a little bit more up to speed. And, um, you know, so, for example, we had Ryan O'Hanlon talking about very much the thing you're talking about, just yep. is possession a thing or is it more about getting vertical? And so I, I felt better equipped this time around. OK, <laughs> but let's talk about college football, because it has been, you know, the, the bowl season starts out a little bit sketchy, let's say, you know, bowls you, you don't you've never heard of. You don't even buy the products that are branding these bowls. And then some teams that, unless you're Bill Connolly, you probably haven't paid that much attention to. And then they build. And this one really hockey sticked on us and got a little crazy and fun there at the end. I mean, it's been a lot of fun coming through the the New Year's Six and just before that. I mean, except for the Alamo Bowl, which was I hope nobody paid attention to. It was pretty late at night, I will say. Like, that was one I didn't – I'm not going to pretend I watched all of that one live, uh, if we're being honest. But Good. Well, and, and and if you do pay attention to those other teams, the, the whole thing was pretty fun. I mean, you, we had kind of a weird – it wasn't the most high-quality game in the world between Troy and UTSA, but it was weird and close, and uh, that basically uh-huh. kicked us off. And just all throughout that early period, BYU-SMU was weird. Boise State, North North Texas was weird. We just – it was – an extremely high percentage of close games and um, what, what in the world could you ask for beyond that in bowl season? Obviously there are a lot of these, the best players in the country aren't going to be playing and you're really just looking to be entertained. And they were extremely entertaining. I was going to ask you, Bill, do you see in the new college football playoff world, not a consolidation necessarily in the number of bowls, but in the timing. Like right now, it seems like it's spread over like, I don't know, five weeks or something like that. <laughs> three, I mean, I'm just, I know it's not, but it's like yeah. three, four weeks. 
do you at least see a consolidation or do you see possibly even the opposite, which is, you know, spread it out while, yeah, of course, everybody wants the college football playoff games. If that's the only college football you got, maybe it'll sell as a better product. How do you see that happening? I'm very curious about exactly that. Cause right now, I mean, we had um, conference title games on December 3rd, we had army Navy on December 10th. Uh, and then we barreled right in. We had uh, what two games on December 16th and then six on the 17th and off we went. Um, and then, you know, two and a half or whatever weeks later, it was over. I, I mean, obviously they're not going to change the schedule radically to where we have bowls on like January 17th or something, but how they handle those first couple of weeks when we're looking at a situation in two years where we got four, uh, first round playoff games, um, it, it, I, it, what was the final arrangement? I guess it would have been like the 17th, right? Like that's when they would have kicked off. I, I believe, I don't think it would have been the 10th. I don't remember what they ended up. There are a lot of scenarios on the table that they were discussing, but regardless, you're not going to have six bowls on that day. That's going to be first round playoff day and how those things get distributed from there. I'm very, very curious because um, I mean, there's a lot of there, there. There's plenty of space for these games, but I don't know what they're going to end up deciding. on. I hadn't even thought about this, but what about the overlap that will eventually happen? What, will the NFL season be over by the time the college football is over? <laughs> That's been a no, 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 gotten that deep. Yeah, well, and that's that was a big point of discussion. Like everybody, they finally agreed to expand, and then they were like, "Well, crap! The NFL has their tentacles everywhere now. So how do we actually arrange these games uh, to where they won't be gobbled up by the NFL?" And it's, I mean, at some point you just have to say, you know, do what you're going to do, and don't worry about that. But I get that the NFL just the the ratings involved with the NFL are something you don't want to compete with if you don't have to. Y'all might be referring to the fact that late in the season and then when the playoffs start, NFL spreads over Saturday and Sunday. So I guess that's where the real problem would get. So the season goes on much past college football, but they start grabbing Saturdays, which is right, which is a bit of the extra week uh, of the NFL season as well means like you can't really go in that direction and really help yourself any. So it's it's going to be interesting. I'm. You know, again, at some point you just say, forget it, trust your product and, and put schedule the games when you schedule them. But they, yeah, they kind of the thought thing, themselves they, in circles. There seems to be plenty of appetite for college football. I mean, people are watching <laughs> these games. The product is good. Um, it's been a lot of fun. Let's talk about what's in front of us. So a week from uh, Monday night, so less than a week now, we have TCU and Georgia. And um, I guess my main question for you, Bill, is, when does TCU start performing like our numbers are saying they'll perform and, and how long, how much longer can they can continue to outperform? So let me just review the numbers, our numbers real quickly. Okay. And then I'm curious what you say. And we know of course what the market the market has it like 12 and a half points or something like that. If you look at Massey Peabody's full model, which still has a lot of weight on priors because priors are still predictive this late in the year, according to us, it's something like 19 points. If you take out priors, you're like, I don't like the priors. We were wrong about TCU. It's a different club than we thought. Then Georgia doesn't move around a lot, but TCU does. And it looks right. more like a 13 point game. So our non-prior model is right on top of the market, but that's still not very much fun to go into the game thinking, ah, you know, here's Georgia about 13 and God knows what that could mean. What, how, what do your numbers say, Bill? And how are you thinking about it? It's looking at actually TCU closed the gap a little, little this last uh, this last week uh, because of well, their performance both, in both directions. They performed better than projections, and, and Georgia performed a little worse. Um, so now mm-hmm. I think let's see, SP Plus has it at Georgia by eleven. Um, okay. So what, what is that? Thirty-five to twenty-four, basically. Um, uh-huh. What's funny with uh-huh. TCU is um, 
they, as far as project, one of the things I've been trying to do a better job of following this year is just kind of week to week projections, how or, or week to week um, performance versus projections, and like just you know who's trending up and down and everything, and uh, uh-huh. who's trending up and down on offense and defense. TCU has been all over the board. They exploded out of the gate. Those first four games of the season, they overachieved pretty dramatically. That got them into the 20s because they were projected 41st in SP Plus because, of course, they were. They were five and seven last year. They're under right. 500 for the last four years. Um, but that got them into the 20s. Uh, they kind of stabilized for a little bit. But then late in the year, uh, they, they, let's see, they exceeded. Uh, projections against texas by 12 points then they underachieved by five against baylor then they overachieved by 30 against iowa state then they underachieved by six against kansas state and then overachieved by 15 so they've been all over the place these last few weeks um and i I don't know what that means exactly like they they rise to the occasion if you give them something to defeat you with they will take it i think that's the one thing we've learned they kind of they won a defensive battle against texas which i don't think any of us saw a defensive battle breaking out in that game but they um they won a game in that way they've won you know the old school track meets the 43 40 games uh, against oklahoma state they've blown teams out they've looked like garbage and needed two or three scores late to pull a, uh, to pull a game out late. They've kind of done it all. And, and it's been so impressive to watch. This is such a veteran team. I was walking through, I mean, the, the, the most of this lineup, they have one freshman defensive tackle. Otherwise they're all juniors and seniors. They've all just been through massive ups and downs at TCU or their defense has a starter from Louisiana Monroe, a starter from New Mexico, like a rotation guy from Stephen F. Austin. Um, just all these, like they're just grizzled. Uh, they're fast and they're grizzled. And um, okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. So Bill, on the one hand, you're telling us story. On the other hand, this, these are objective facts that you're yeah. mustering. And it's just experience. So this is kind of the overall question for you is, okay, how has TCU done this? Because we something we often say about a team as well, they could make the playoff, but they're not going to win a playoff game. They just went in and and not just held their own, but they they fought a real fight against Michigan. Now yep. they had something like twenty five expected points headed by defense, which right. is gonna right. is gonna help you. But they they traded blows with yep. one of the best teams country and most people wouldn't have expected that and so how do we explain that your first swing at it is experience and i think that's a good general question and modelers like you and me should be asking ourselves do we have have we looked hard enough at experience in our models have we pushed it hard enough have we stretched have we are we accounting for it properly that's one question so just real quick a quick aside unsurprisingly on the longhorns that was one of the takes that 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 a poster had pre-game that Washington had on Texas kind of in spades was experience. Mm-hmm. And it's something that we say, and I, and we try to get into our models, Bill, but I'm not sure we get in there enough. That seems like one possibility. Okay, I'm just going to put a pin on the other one. The other one I hear yeah. you talk about this is, is Spike Dykes. So, um, I mean. Sonny Dykes, Sonny Dykes. Sonny Dykes, Sonny Dykes, Spike Dykes' son. So, Sonny Dykes is the other obvious question and I, I don't know what to do with it. I'm curious your thought. Don't let to, let's talk about those two things. Experience. Well, but Bill, but Bill, can you add to that experience argument? If also give us your probability, if TCU and Michigan were to play a hundred games mm-hmm. going forward, how many of those do you think TCU wins? Cause another ar- argument is explosive plays. As you mentioned, you give them an opportunity, just all the explosive plays went their way. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, no, not that's not like they were, no, Michigan no, had a no. ton of explosives. Now, the, the game-changing plays, obviously not just picking the off game two passes. The game-changing plays. But yeah, Michigan had some touchdowns. explosive plays, too. 
It yeah, seemed oh, like well, every, yeah, yeah. every play of that second half went for about 50 yards. <laughs> nothing but explosive plays. Yeah, no, that's I, I think that was the it, it wasn't necessarily they were the only ones making the big plays, but picking off two passes and taking them for touchdowns and you know, getting the the obvious break of um, you know, the the replay overturning the touchdown there, which yeah. I still yeah. thought was a touchdown. No one understands I was, it. I, no one I, understands I, it. I, I was I was very surprised by that. And then getting the fumble. Like obviously they got some breaks. Um I will say though, like it wasn't all luck. It wasn't all TCU just getting the breaks in that way because it's from an expected turnover standpoint, the number of times you fumbled, the number of times you know you, you intercepted or broke up a pass, my expected turnovers you know, equation said it should have been like um, you know, three to two. It should have been TCU plus one, and it was it was plus zero for the game. So they were okay. not, not completely fortunate, but they got specific breaks and um, they broke on specific passes uh, and took them to the house, and that obviously made a humongous difference. Um, so the experience thing, like the modeling thing, I think is is really interesting because that's going to be for a few years there. I felt like I kind of had the projections model not mastered, but at least I knew the pieces. Um, that my returning production piece was going to account for this and my recruiting piece was going to account for this and recent history is going to kind of tell you program health and kind of fill in the gaps Mm -hmm. and it's going to work pretty well. Now with the transfer portal, number one, Mm -hmm. recruiting has completely shifted. Um, And I don't think I did a good enough job of accounting for like the USC's of the world uh, taking 18 to 20 transfers. So hard Um, to do. It's, It's hard to do. No, and there was just there was no precedent for it, and so I was kind of guessing in that regard. But then the way that 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 the portal also changes the experience part of the equation. Um, you can't just say we return sixty eight percent of our production, and that's basically our experience because you right. could be bringing in transfers that are redshirt freshmen. You could be bringing in transfers from Louisiana Monroe who have seen everything and uh, been through a whole heck of a and lot. How, and, and how does that count? And how does that count? I mean, I mean, or even drop down to, you know, an FCS school. You can bring in yeah. a guy who's a four-year starter, team captain, FCS. Right. And you think, well, there's a lot of experience, but that's a very different kind of experience. And how does right. it translate? Do you get full credit? You shouldn't get full. I don't think. Right. But it's hard. We, none of us know how to do it right now. Yeah. No, it's, it's, um, that, that's really interesting to me. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of like not knowing and, and it, it's going to be really interesting just to see all how, all these different coaches try to approach things in, in the way they, in roster construction, but I don't think it's a way that we necessarily have modeled. And also is just, this was such a unique situation. Even if we had that all modeled, we had had a bunch of other teams projected to improve more than TCU because they didn't that's right. load up on right. the portal as much as other teams did. So that's right. It's, that's it's right. messy right now. So Bill, mm-hmm. I think we all agree just, you know, in terms of let's call it, whether you want to call it estimated strength models, uh, the, the games this year, Georgia's the better team in yes. quotes. Yeah. How does TCU play a high variance strategy then? In other words, if they play a low variance strategy and just plan to, well, we're just going to beat Georgia. We're just going to play it conservative and we're the better. No, that's not going to work. So how is there an opportunity for them to play a high variance strategy? And what would that look like? Well, I think it's, it's, they're kind of the ultimate high variance team. And we see this in every game, like not necessarily from game to game, but within every game, uh, they're all over the place. And it's, you know, I think the best way to describe it is I have my marginal explosiveness measure. And basically what it looks at is it's kind of an expected points thing, but it's looking specifically at your successful plays. Basically, you know, my success rate equation, how frequently are you successful? And then when you're successful, how big are those explosions? 
Um, TCUs are big. TCUs fifth or second, excuse me, offensively in this marginal explosiveness. And they're also 107th defensively in this um, measure because <laughs> they are playing pretty aggressively. They, they're pretty high efficiency for the most part. And they're willing to basically say, let's make this a big play battle because we think we can win it. And they can't. They have frequently this year and it makes them an all or nothing team. And we see that in games, every single game, they would have like a, they'd score three points in four possessions and then they'd go touchdown, touchdown, touchdown. And it was just kind of this thing. What, what we saw in the third quarter against Michigan, they were comfortable when, when everything just went absolute madness. They were totally comfortable in that situation because they've been there and they're happy to throw haymakers. And um, that's, I think the biggest, I mean, they don't, you know, we can talk about slowing the pace down. We can talk about a lot of other high variance kind of things. That's the one they they thrive in. And it's something, I mean, Georgia can probably handle, you know, all, an all or nothing team against Georgia is going to be a lot more nothing than all, most likely. But um, Georgia's defense has kind of stunk the last two games and they're playing a team that is going to throw haymakers. I'm curious how that plays out. Speaking of Georgia and experience, they've obviously got, a you know, 42 year old starting quarterback. And you think that that might make a difference. I mean, compared to JJ McCarthy, who is a younger guy. And in this case, you've got a very experienced quarterback on the TCU side and on the Georgia side. When we talk about experience, we probably ought to be putting extra weight on the years or starts that the quarterback has, right? Because they're disproportionately important. And we see Bennett, I mean, Bennett really grew going into last year and you saw that pay off. And then he seems to have grown again. And my gosh, it's still paying off. I, they can't. I, they can't expect the kind of gifts that they got from McCarthy from Bennett, presumably. Presumably, but he tried to give some of those gifts to Ohio State too, and they dropped some interceptions. That was mm-hmm. that was uh, the whole performance by Georgia the other day was just confusing to a certain degree. And I, I know anytime you're like, you know, where's Brock Bowers? Why aren't they throwing? T-? It's probably because Ohio State was doing something in that regard, and it's right. not something my eye catches when watching the game in real time. Um, but they were out of sorts. I wrote this big thing about their what I was calling their man ball spread. That was a big part of the the preview um uh, that went up last week and just how they spread you horizontally like TCU does like a lot of teams do throw a bunch of sideways passes and just try to get their best playmakers in space except their best playmakers are 64230 and 67275 <laughs> um and so they figured out a way to to basically spread you out like an offense is supposed to or like a spread offense is supposed to but then also just beat you up physically they didn't do that Darnell Washington got hurt uh, and Lad McConkey, their best receiver, was clearly out of sorts. He's been battling an ankle injury, and he he really he he wasn't able to do much. But they they really did whatever Ohio State was doing to to bracket Bro- uh, Brock Bowers or take him out of the game. It worked, and and Stetson Bennett was starting to look like 2020 Stetson Bennett there, just kind of yeah, saying, yeah, yeah. "Well, let's just try this out and throwing uh, and you know throwing into traffic and 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 bringing back <laughs> some of his bad habits." So. Maybe that was as simple as saying Washington was hurt and McConkey was hurt and he didn't, they didn't yeah, have right. their offense as they wanted it, but it wasn't working very well. And, and as is the case all year, once they had to be perfect, they were perfect for the most part. And, and they got out <laughs> with a win, but it was, it was tough. Nothing worked like it was yeah. supposed to for them. So talk to us about how, how we can watch the title game a little more from a sharper perspective. Like when you think about the game, you're going to be you're going to be running kind of the forecast model in your head as you watch the game. Like, what are you going to be paying attention to that you think is diagnostic early in the game for 
how things will unfold over the full game. Well, typically what I look at early in a game, no matter what, um, is, you know, even if a team, if team A is moving the ball pretty well and team B punts a couple of times, like, you know, are you, are you falling on, are you, are you looking at second and six or second and nine, you know, third and three or third and eight, even if you're completing some third and eights early on, that probably means bad things later on. Um, and then just mm-hmm. the, the line play, like, you know, who, who seems to be winning up front. Um, the, those things matter. They matter a lot when you think about TCU playing against a, a, a humongous physical team like this. That was the biggest thing I was looking at last week against Michigan was, you know, TCU, they, they handled B. John Robinson. Sorry. Um, they didn't handle other run games. And um, I was just really, if, if they couldn't stop Michigan from running the ball between the tackles, that was all Michigan was going to do. But after the first play of the game, they stopped it. Um, I don't remember what it was. It was like 13 carries for 20 yards or something to that effect for Donovan Edwards after that first carry. Absolutely. And right. um, that was probably Bill. It's good that you brought that. That was to me the most shocking stat. Yeah. If you had told most people that TCU, I think outran Michigan by a hundred yards in the game or something yeah. close to that. If you had told most people that before the game, they would have said that's not possible. All right. TCU could win the game, I guess, but there's no way that's right. going to happen. <laughs> no. And, and it's funny. I, um, I've, I've read enough soccer over recent years. There's a, a soccer manager. I don't remember who it's credited to. It might've been Jose Mourinho. might've been uh, Armando Medites. He, um, he talked about the short blank. So soccer is a short blanket game. You basically, you cover up your head and it uncovers your feet and, or you cover up your feet and uncovers your head and you have to figure out exactly what you're willing to live with. And I started with TCU and they're just virulent orthodox 335. 335 is what they're going to run no matter what. It really seems like the way they place their defenders, they're basically saying, we're going to cover up our head and we're going to hope that our, our our feet don't get too cold. They covered up the run uh, against Michigan. They forced Michigan to beat them throwing the ball. Uh, and it almost worked, but Michigan was, you know, playing left-handed and they they made just enough mistakes that TCU was able to get away with that. I don't know what you cover up if you're when you're playing Georgia because they're physical. They're going to run the ball, but they're going to beat you with those passes, especially on the perimeter um, and spreading you out and and just trying to get their bigger guy, the guys that they had that are bigger than you. They're going to get them blocking smaller guys um, and really making a mess of you physically. I don't know what you what you cover up, uh, head or feet. I don't know what it is, and I'm curious how TCU goes about. But it, it. must be st- you're are you just something are you describing something stylistically. The only reason I'm asking is, let's say Georgia was playing Michigan in the championship game. Yeah, what would the spread have been on that game? It couldn't have been more than three or four points, right? So it's not that it's like the oh, is it a matchup argument that you're making because Georgia's just more balanced than Michigan is, and it has a more let's call it mature quarterback and mature passing yeah. game. Because if Georgia and Michigan were playing each other. We wouldn't be saying, wow, this is a blowout. Yeah, Georgia's more diverse offensively because they will run the ball like Michigan does, but Michigan doesn't really take those short passes. That's not really what they're into. Georgia has two different ways of being efficient, and you have to figure out which one you're going to stop. Um, they also don't throw downfield very well. Michigan probably does that a little better than Georgia has this year, at least until A.D. Mitchell came back last week and kind of saved them against Ohio State. Um, they didn't really have their deep threats. Uh, Stetson Bennett's not an amazing deep passer. And so maybe, you know, maybe you just try, you know, sell out near the line of scrimmage and say, hopefully we only get burned once. Um, and, and maybe that's the answer, but that's, you have to account for two different efficiency weapons when you're playing Georgia and Michigan really only has one. Mm -hmm. Bill, before we leave this discussion, I do want to hear 
about dikes from you. I, I, I mean, coaching evaluations are an interesting and challenging <laughs> thing to do. Um, I think he deserves a lot of credit, gets a lot of credit for what's happened with TC. He's a first-year coach down there. Um, they fired Patterson mid-year last year after, you know, years and years. These players are mostly Patterson's players. Um, Dykes has, you know, f- famous tree, um, but he hasn't exactly. I mean, good, 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 good success at SMU, very mixed in Cal. What, what, what's your understanding of Dykes? What's your attribution for the role he's played and what TCU's doing? Yeah, basically, if you're hiring Sonny Dykes, you, you're assuming you're going to get a really good offense and, and you know, less less than an amazing defense. Um, let's see, in 11 seasons as a head coach heading into this year, his team's averaged an SP, an offensive SP Plus ranking of 25.7 and a defensive SP Plus ranking of 102. So um, <laughs> that's – and if so, you're, Let me stop you right there. But he inherited Gary Patterson's team, which is a defensive-minded team. Is this and, one part of what's going on? Well, sort of. Their defense stunk last year, though. That was the strangest thing about Patterson's right. ending was suddenly their defense was terrible. Um, and he inherited Quentin Johnston and Max Duggan, among others. So it was that's really true. That's true. That's just not true. what you would expect at all. But I think basically uh, he nailed the coordinator hires, just crushed the coordinator hires. Garrett Riley mm. on offense, Joe Gillespie on defense. Joe Gillespie had Tulsa playing top 30 defense and producing first round draft picks. He is the, mm-hmm. you know, in this era, as, as a lot more teams are playing kind of a three, three, five approach, Gillespie's just about one of the best guys to teach that approach. And and like I said, he, he's married to it. He's going to use it at all times. And so I think it was, he inherited a really experienced team. He added, he, he hit the portal pretty well, added some, some didn't make humongous splashes there, but clearly upgraded, especially on defense and you know he knows offense and and so that that was never going to be all that much of a concern no matter what and and you know they're playing in the they're ranked in the 30s i think defensively and in the let's see where are they they're fifth offensively and 37th defensively in in sp plus mm-hmm. and that's that's gotten him to this point i think it's just he mm-hmm. he crushed all the little details we'll see like you know he, he's not gonna be doing this for 10 years most likely it's gonna um, be kind of an up and down road overall, but just he he nailed the first year in every way you could you could nail the first year. It, how, where does this rate in the college football stories this century? Let's say let's just the last twenty two years. I and mean, how many years ago you're you know the answer to this question? How many years ago was TCU not in the Power Five? They were in the Mountain West or whatever the hell they had been allocated relegated to after the Southwest Conference. How many years ago was that? Was years ago yeah, that was, was that? Uh, not that many. Their first year would have been twenty twelve. Um, that's when they okay. So moved. ten years in Power yeah. Five. That's remarkable. Yeah, I mean you've got and you got Utah by the way winning back to back Pac twelve titles after you know in their first decade as well. It's been kind of okay. I don't want to take anything away from that, but but going to the BCS yes. or whatever we're calling now college football playoff and winning a game because this is yeah. like oh you had these great teams all yeah. these years and they couldn't pass the semi. No, I've been trying to. I know a big a big part of my my. uh title game preview that I'm trying to crank through here over the next couple of days is just trying to figure out like how rare is what we're seeing right now. And because like 24 years of the BCS and college football playoff, 48 title game spots, 47 of them were occupied by teams that were ranked in the preseason. Um, and, and the one that wasn't was Auburn who had been in the, the title game three years earlier and had just fallen apart the year before. So that they don't even really count hardly in that regard. So, you know, the, the best example I have for what TCU is accomplishing right now so far is 1996 Arizona state where they, where they 
were mid lane 500, but they were extremely experienced. They had a Jake Plummer at quarterback. They I said, had a, you know, is that Jake Plummer era? Yeah. All right. That was and, fun Arizona State. And they go 11 and 0, and they're leading the Rose Bowl late in the fourth quarter with a chance to win the national title if they can close it out. And Ohio State beats them, and then Florida pummels Florida State. Florida wins the national title. But they were that, that's the best example I can come up with for a team that has been 500 for four years and is yeah. in the national title game with a chance to win the title. It's, it's right, I, right, right, right. It's crazy. But, but even Arizona State has been power five right. since you know, right. whatever the 30. They've been whatever for whatever been. that it had been 25, 30 years at yeah. that point. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, great fun. Appreciate your taking time to be with us, especially in what I know is a busy week and busy time of year for you. But keep up the great work, Bill. Love talking to you. Appreciate you taking time for us. Absolutely. That was Bill Connolly. You can follow him on Twitter. You can read him on ESPN. Uh, You can watch him on ESPN. And uh, you can catch him here periodically. That has been two quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We've still got a half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to the third quarter of the first show of 2023. Rolling into the second half of the show, we are delighted to welcome on our second guest of the day. For the first time, Kevin Cole, Kevin's long overdue on this podcast. We have been readers and watchers and listeners of Kevin's for years. I've had the delight of meeting and probably drinking a few something somethings with Kevin back in the day. Hopefully post pandemic, there's more of that to come, but this is the first time we've had Kevin on Wharton Moneyball. Afternoon to you, Kevin. Thanks for joining Good afternoon to you. And yeah, the name escapes me now, but the Thursday night uh, Sloan drinking hole, I believe, is no longer. It was closed down last year. So hopefully, hopefully we got a new spot for that. There's there's a it's it's moved. It's the, this, it, it lives on in spirit, the, the different venue. But the, the occasion remains the Thursday night of Sloan will happen. And I will see you there again. Kevin, fill us in on where you're coming in from, where's home base. You've got a fantastic podcasting situation there with both some NFL greats and big Lebowski greats on the background. Where where are you? What's the setup? I am outside of DC in Rockville, Maryland. I was in New York for, let me think here, I guess about 13 years uh, working in finance and then uh, going off my own and working in fantasy related analytics. And then of course for PFF for a bit. And we had a, we had a pandemic move here down to, to Rockville. So a little more, a little more space, uh, a couple of young kids. It, it's been nice to be out here. And yeah, I have my own dedicated uh, podcasting room instead of trying to do things on the kitchen <laughs> table when no one's paying attention in my, you know, $4,000 a month, uh, 1000 square foot apartment in New York city. <laughs> Yeah, between kids and podcasting, I would think the Maryland might be a better setup than New York City. That makes that makes a lot of sense. And you know, given that I'm coming to you from the countryside outside of Austin, another pandemic move. I'm sympathetic to the impact the last couple of years had. Listen, we're checking in with you on the heels of the PFF thing wrapping up, and you're you're focusing more exclusively on unexpected points. Tell us a little bit about that. It's one of these either podcasts or newsletters that a lot of people are familiar with may not understand all of where it came from. I, from, for my money, it's one of the most interesting things that hits my email on a regular basis, genuinely, sincerely. And so just tell us a little bit about where that came from and what you hope to do with it now that you're full-time on that. 
Sure, sure. So yeah, when I was at PFF, I did a number of different things. Some of the behind the scenes work, helping build out different tools and models for them, some writing, uh, some in the DFS fantasy sports space, a little bit in the betting space, and then also some podcasting there. So what I'm trying to do is really kind of focus in on what I enjoy to do the most. And that is Great interviews um, with hopefully people like yourselves. I have to ask you guys to all come on the the podcast at some point and do that. And then also, I like the newsletter format. I'm a big fan of David Leonard, and I'm sure if you guys know him or not, he writes the morning newsletter for the New York Times. I wanted to replicate something similar to that, you know, make it database, but maybe not overly database. Try to have a smart, insightful, measured take about something. And you can get into, you know, more topical things also with what's going on there, in addition to some weekly staples of things that I'm putting out, like power rankings, and I had this adjusted scores calculation and things like that. So, Kevin, I just wanted to know, because a lot of our listeners, um, I'll call it do analytics and sports on the side. A full time job at Pro Football Focus, I PFF, I think people get how, you know, how Kevin makes a living. And it's on our notes. It says you are director of data and analytics at Roto Grinders. I think people get that when you write now. So just for all of our listeners, how do you monetize this? Like it could be, you know, you sell advertising, it could be you do freelance writing, maybe you have some other full time job you haven't told us about. But how how do you kind of turn your passion and your obviously capabilities? And I agree with Kate, I love reading what you write. How do you turn that into a job? Well, I'd say it's a work in progress at this point. I mean, I'm hopeful by the fact that it was a little bit of interesting timing. Um, for those who don't know the backstory, PFF had to pare down quite a few people, including myself. And it happened to come uh, the Friday before week 13 of the NFL season. So it's not exactly the, the greatest timing. But I, again, I had been thinking about this type of newsletter before, which I'm now putting out on Substack, which helped streamline the process of being able to put something out there. They have the ability to subscribe through there. And what I'm hoping for through this and Maybe in some ways it'll even be more conducive to the type of product that I'm putting out is that if people really enjoy it, um, I have different levels that they can subscribe to as far as how much they're willing to pay for it. And for me, I would rather have that, I think, than an advertising-based format, which a lot of podcasts are, just because I don't think I'm ever going to grab the most eyeballs or eardrums or however you want to talk about it, but... I want to produce something that's highly valuable to certain people. So I think having the subscriber-based format, that's what I'm doing there. That's what I'm going to go for. And then also, I'm not really tempted to put things out there where it's going to be attracting a lot of attention or or sites just for that. I want to be able to stay intellectually honest in that sort of way also. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's one way you can support Kevin uh, and, uh, and other folks who are tr- making a go of it the way Kevin is. Um, And again, we can strongly recommend taking a look, whether you're paying a subscription or not, taking a look and signing up for his unexpected points newsletter. I want to, I want to note Kevin, that one of my favorite podcast episodes of the year, I would say, I didn't, we didn't do any 2022 reviews, but looking at you and hearing you reminds me that had I done one, I needed to list your episode. I think it was with Baldwin, Ben Baldwin rating NFL front offices. I thought it was, do I have that right? That was so much fun. It was in the spring-ish, I want to say, around the draft, before or after the draft. And you guys, you didn't you didn't rate like 1 to 32 or something. I think you did like each had a top five and then maybe each had a bottom five or something like that. It was a lot of fun. It was eye-opening. And I actually thought, I, I gave myself an assignment that I, I still haven't, I still would like to do, I haven't done. I wanted to go back and, and pull out the criteria 
that you guys were implicitly using because you kept on making some of the same arguments over the course of your discussion. It seemed to me that there were five or six or eight dimensions more or less by which you evaluated these front offices. But it was a terrific episode. I hope you guys will do it again. I think it's something that is worth revisiting every now and then. Can you say anything about your experience with that episode or how you've thought about it since? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think um, maybe we could talk a little about it versus the reaction to it. So I think typically it's really hard to figure out what makes a good front office versus what the results have been on the field. Like that is very typical that someone, for instance, like Ryan Poles coming over from the Kansas City Chiefs to then become the general manager of the Bears is you kind of just pick off the guys who have been successful in different places. So we were trying to more look at the process behind different things, whether it is, and as you would know better than anyone, um, you know, not trading away too much draft capital to move up in the draft, at least not for a non-quarterback, whether it is, how you're working in free agency, maybe not overspending, whether it is, and I think it's a really important one, is maximizing the compensatory picks and other things of that nature. And just kind of building all those together to think who's doing the best job in that. Of course, we're going to want to look at front offices that have been more successful than others. But for instance, we had the Saints pretty low, I think, in the bottom five of both of our ratings. And a lot of people were not happy at all about that. But it's been a very successful team. Um, and they, you know, they rolled the dice, especially in that 2017 draft and ended up, you know, rolling 7-11 over and over again. So you're going to have success when you do that. Yeah, I, you were entertainingly religious about evaluating the process and eschewing results. You were entertainingly religious, Kevin. I mean, you were stretching the tolerance of even, I think, the most analytics happy people. And, and I really appreciated that. I think we need people who are doing that. But you were adamant about we're going to evaluate the process results be damned and it's a it's i think it's a message that non-analysts just basically can't hear i i I don't know what kind of reaction you have but i can imagine what kind of reaction you had to to the way you were talking about that yeah yeah yeah. people don't want to hear it and you know maybe we maybe we'll all blame bill parcells for you are your record sort of situation but that comes up very often even when we're evaluating teams this year and for instance when i put together power rankings when it comes to teams like the minnesota vikings and others yeah i'm I'm gonna get a lot of grief for it but i i I've, i've learned to filter it out pretty well and if i do get some thoughtful criticism i'm definitely willing to incorporate it otherwise you know, when you pull up the the Twitter profile of someone with purple, you know, purple fan, uh, <laughs> you know, 2022 and then the Vikings in the background, and everything else, you know, <laughs> I, I'm willing to assume I may not be the most biased person in that uh, back and forth. Given, given well, kind I, of this I, focus. I, but, oh, go ahead, Cade. Well, I just want to say one last thing. I, and I, I don't uh, I, I, there's there is a role for people who are purists, an important role for purists. And if I, this is a, a bit of a, this is a risk of being aggrandizing, but we've all had academic friends who have made great progress by being very pure. And they're kind of frustratingly, maddeningly pure. And they're wrong ultimately because they're so pure, because nothing is that pure. But because they're so pure, they, they push the frontiers and they advance and they challenge, they challenge people's thinking. So, for example, Gary Becker in economics or flip it around, Richard Taylor in behavioral economics, to have those guys battling it out from two kind of extreme perspectives, hugely helpful for the field. I, I have a few people in my life who are really pure on the analytics, some of them inside teams, some of them like you on the outside of teams. And I think it helps, even if I'm a little uncomfortable with it, I'm a little too, you know, a little too moderate for that. I think it's helpful for the, for the dialogue. Yeah, and, and given kind of your uh, kind of focus on process and evaluating front offices, I'm curious to sort of 
hear your thoughts on who you, who, how you think about coach of the year each year and how you think about evaluating coaching in general. Cause obviously it's kind of the middle point between the front office and, and, and the players. And it's obviously very tempting to be very outcome driven as opposed to process driven in that, especially because we don't get to observe the process as much. So how do you kind of think about coach of the year and who do you, how do you think about coach of the year this particular year? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. I know, I don't know if it was the case last year with Vrabel, but I know for several years in a row, if you wanted to see who the coach of the year was going to be, all you really had to do, and I think this would have been Zach Taylor last year if if, if you took this formula, but it didn't end up paying off. Uh, all you had to do was look at the preseason win total projection by betting markets and the wins, actual wins, uh, you know, subtract <laughs> one from the other, whichever had the highest number is your coach of the year. So that's the process currently, how we yeah. think about coaches out in the, in the market. So we, we, we want to be a little bit more thoughtful, I guess, than that. But the problem when it comes to coach of the year, I think generally is that if you say you wanted to have confidence that you're getting good coaching from someone, like how could you not just make it Andy Reid or Bill Belichick or someone like that season in and season out, um, especially when the results are basically there. It's just they're also matched up, at least in the case of Andy Reid right now, with with high expectations at the same point in time. Uh, I think another problem is we have more insight into what offensive play calling coaches are doing versus what other more CEO types are doing. So that makes it easier to evaluate it, but it could also be biased towards the offensive play calling types where we can say, hey, they're doing things like going forward on fourth down. They're thinking about a little more strategic way of using play action or early down passing and things of that nature. And it makes it really, really hard uh, to, 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 do, to, to do that analysis. Now, if you wanted to say a new head coach, and this happens all the time that new head coaches get it, uh, Kevin Stefanski a couple of years ago, uh, someone like Brian Dable this year, I do think there's value in that. But the problem is you also get a little bit tricked by the fact that the natural cycle of performance over talent you know, you don't bring in a new head coach unless your team is underperforming. So guess what? You bring in a new head coach and you do a little bit better that year. So how much credit do we give to the coach in those circumstances? It, it, it's a really hard thing to do. So, Kevin, one of the things I've always thought about with this, I, I love the I love the simple method. One of the things I've always thought about is maybe we should look at it not from the beginning of the year, but like I look at this season and I look at the job that Matt LaFleur has done bringing this team back from the brink to where in week 17 they control their own destiny i look at the job that uh mike tomlin has done convincing these steelers with no quarterback and no decent offense that they've actually could make the playoffs as well and i think they have a very reasonable shot since i think the uh patriots could lose to the bills i think the jets could absolutely beat the dolphins it's possible given who's going to start for the dolphins um, is there any way you would think about maybe saying like, you know, someone that's performed well in the second half of the season or has, or would there be a more what I'll call non-stationary way of looking at coaching as opposed to just the preseason? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it, it's probably somewhat similar to if you're building a power ranking or something like that, that you want to, you know, decay past results and you're giving exactly. more time to the coach to work with and figure things out, honestly, as the season has gone on famously, you know, the Patriots were not very good early in the season. I mean, not very good for Patriots who, you know, end up getting the number one seed constantly, but they were always seen as a team that improved throughout the year as things were being figured out. So I think that that is important. But I mean, Mike Tomlin is another name that falls into it where I wouldn't be opposed of say, as saying, 
these guys just have earned it over their careers and have earned it by being so solidly good. So if there's something extraordinary you can point out in the results, which may be noise, you know, it may be variant, something like that. If you're still using that to then reward someone who has a longer track record, I think that's very appropriate. And Mike Tomlin would be a great choice this season. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think it, it all of this kind of comes down to, and I think you kind of framed it this way, Kevin, is that we're always doing some kind of residual compared to expectation right because right. again yeah i mean bill belichick's a fantastic coach you could give him to him every year and it wouldn't be particularly controversial other than it would be kind of boring to give him to him every year so we're always looking for some kind of almost surprise given expectations i think there's a couple different ways that you i mean you, you mentioned brian brian dable and like doug peterson are probably you know if, if you go by kind of preseason expectations uh, the overall kind of seasonal record of the giants and jaguars it's hard to argue with against those two guys but you also could do something like kind of residual like your top player goes down and the team team keeps on jugging like you know i mean kyle shanahan's on his third string quarterback and they're you know (laughs) san francisco still looks amazing and so i I think it all uh, as you said i think it's always going to be a subjective sort of what you know what are you comparing their performance relative maybe maybe shane just a suggestion would be the difference in residuals or some sort of you know um in belichick's case since it's almost likely to be a positive residual every single year how large is this residual to other years well, for his the, residuals? the, the tr- trouble is the residual is against the counterfactual that you don't know so like what if other coaches had brock purdy in there right now that's what you're kind of implicitly trying to judge and you just mm-hmm. don't have that number but speaking of adjusting numbers and speaking of adjusting uh, our evaluations for context, I think one of the most interesting things that you've been doing recently, Kevin, are these um, adjusted quarterback efficiency numbers. So this is something I think you've introduced in the past, but you've revised some additionally recently, very recently, the last few weeks. Can you talk a little bit about that expected points added, adjusted for a variety of things. I mean, you're adjusting for all kinds of things now. Receiver value, the ability to get open, scheme and receiver effects on yards after catch, weather adjustments, which you've upped from being just, you know, dome or not to like real weather or wind or wet or, or humidity and uh, pressure prevention to, 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 to affect sacks. So this is, seems to me pretty remarkable. And it's, it's more than just like a, a fun game because numbers are actually moving with these adjustments. You're seeing the, you know, the evaluations of the quarterbacks change. Can you tell us a little bit about this exercise? Yeah. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think those of us who like expected points added, and I'm sure everyone on your broadcast is somewhat familiar with it, but it's, it's the best way to measure the value of a play. Now, the problem is, is it the best way Kevin, to measure- give us, give it, give us the canonical definition of expected points added. Cause then you're going to permute it. So Joe, in case we do have some listeners who don't have it. Sure, sure, sure. I mean, you get into more and more details, but essentially you're on every single down distance field position, uh, you know, uh, time time left in the game, things like that. You're calculating the probabilities of different outcomes, whether it's you scoring a field goal, a touchdown, your opponent doing an X, a safety if you're near the end zone, all these different things. And then from there you have an expected points before the play. And then you just recalculate basically everything after a play. And the difference between those two is an approximation for how much value was added on that play. Now, for quarterbacks, it's become at least amongst uh, the nerds. I don't know. I'll I'll, I'll put myself in that bucket to say we're going to use expected points added per play. So that would be what's happening every time they drop back to pass. And then also what's happening every time they have a designed run. Um, where they're the focal point there, assuming that they are the most valuable piece of what's going on. Now, a lot of people don't like 
that or will complain about it. Um, very often you'll hear EPA is a team stat because someone like Jimmy Garoppolo will have a high expected points added per play. But the reality is like every stat's a team stat in a way, like passing yards, isn't that a team stat? Passing touchdowns, like it's not like the quarterback's doing Kevin, it all by is there any Is there any reason why people wouldn't want to use maybe win probability added because there could be quarterbacks that perform well when it's not important, but when it's actually important, then they actually, I'm just saying you made it, I'm not saying you're wrong. You made it sound tautological that EPA is what we want to use as our outcome measure, but why not win probability added? I think you could use it. It's just there's just a high degree of variance at the end of at the end of games. You know, um, a certain play when you're making a certain play, let's say, and during the middle of the game, it can be worth a couple of of percentages, and you can make the same exact play in a particular circumstance later on in the game, and it'll be worth. 80% swinging from one direction or another. So because of that, I think there's less uh, stickiness. There's less stability to that type of metric. And in some ways, there's less stability to EPA per play than there is to a adjusted yards, adjusted net yards per attempt or something like that, because you get a higher leverage on third downs or other plays where your expected points are lower for the same sort of play. But generally, I I like it the best because it's a points-based metric also. So it makes some comparisons a little bit better than, than otherwise. But so what I was really trying to do is trying to strip out as much of the context around it as possible to get to the quarterback himself. So as you mentioned, Kevin, I, Kevin, yeah, Kevin real quickly. So one of the, the broad, the, the, so now I understand the broad exercise, which is you're trying to get quarterbacks, but quarterbacks on the offense yeah. are so confounded. This is a fundamental challenge with any model. We run into it big time in Massapia, but we struggle with it. It's really hard to separate these things. So the course, the, the course separation is just call, work with the quarterback plays, passes and design quarterback runs. But now you're going to go deeper than that, and you're going to start, okay, I, I can't separate it, but I can at least control for some factors. And this is an iterative process. So as we get more data, you can control for more. So you're going to tell us about all the things that you're trying to control for. Again, the exercise is always trying to parse ever more finely the quarterback contribution from the broader team contribution or external circumstances. Correct. Correct. I mean, there's some of it you can do with the publicly available data that so I get it from NFL Scraper, which, you know, you've had Ben Baldwin on the show. He's one of the, the people that's helped really found and and create a lot of a lot of that there. and. Some of it you can do from there. You can do easy, easier sort of things like fumble recovery luck or something of that nature. And that, like those types of adjustments are being done currently in ESPN's QBR. So ESPN's QBR is, is similar. It's an EPA-based metric that adjusts. It adjusts for, and I do a similar adjustment, uh, fumble recovery luck. You put into different buckets whether or not the quarterback recovers his own fumble versus a teammate records recovers a fumble because you know, you're more likely you, you, you give a high, a, a more of a penalty to a teammate recovering a fumble and, and whatnot and so on and so forth. So you can do some of those sorts of adjustments. You can do adjustments on strength of schedule. You can do it in which again, QBR does that as part of theirs. You can do adjustments on weather. So that's something that I'm doing there looking mostly at wind speed, but also temperature and whether you're in a, you're in a dome or not for those sort of things. So you can do a lot of those other things. And what I'm trying to also bring into it is charting and tracking based data. So I'm kind of stealing, I'm stealing some stuff out there. So ESPN has their new receiver ratings that they've put out where they have three different categories, how open they are supposed to control for quarterback and scheme and defense, 
um, whether or not their catch score. So, uh, and then their yak, their yards after catch. So I don't use the, 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 the last two because I also do a drop adjustment based upon charting. And I also do an adjustment based upon yak over expectation, but I do focus in on that open score. And that's something where I'm also making an adjustment. And then I make a few other little adjustments for like play yeah, action just usage. Be, yeah, go ahead. To be clear for a quarterback who's throwing to guys who are especially good at getting open. Yeah. You're going to discount the quarterback's performance a little bit. This is the correct. Correct. So if you want to look okay. at quarterbacks, I mean, for instance, this year, it would be, it would be Tua. It would be Jalen Hurts is a big one. I think uh, AJ Brown still has the highest score in that, in that category. Geno Smith is another mm-hmm. one. Tyler Lockett and DK Metcalf also score really well on there. Jimmy Garoppolo was another one that falls in there. And then on the flip side, you know, it's some of the the worst teams that come in there, but there are others like Trevor Lawrence gets a big bump up in the calculation. Uh, because of the fact that his receivers are at least still not scoring as high in those calculations, along with Daniel Jones. And you shouldn't be surprised that Daniel Jones is a guy whose receivers, where I'm not sure if most football fans can name more than maybe one or zero right. receivers that he's throwing to out there. So, so he's another guy who gets a pretty big bump up. By controlling for uh, wide receivers getting open, I, I feel like it, it's actually you're, you're kind of doing double duty there because you're not just controlling for the talent of the wide receivers themselves, but you're also kind of indirectly control like trying to adjust for how good the scheming is on the offensive side, right? I mean, you know, oh, you know like, like San Francisco, yeah. for example, they've got great receivers, but they've all or and and Miami, but they also have great offensive kind of scheming to get those guys op- open into space as well. And you sort of, I feel like you're kind of, I mean, those two are confounded together but in a way you're adjusting for both of them essentially simultaneously yeah yeah i mean i i I don't have the inside view into exactly how espn is calculating calculating these they claim that it is adjusted for scheme now what that means or not i'm not quite sure i do have like i said a separate adjustment where i'm looking at there's an expected yards after catch epa which you can calculate based upon locations on the field so i am looking at that separately yeah i think there can be like the more open they are the more yak they're going to be able to get and things like that so i try not to bring them you know have them confound too much together but again it's a little bit messy i'll agree but i think directionally at least when i'm looking at it someone like patrick mahomes is not getting a huge score for his receivers getting open, but he is being discounted a lot on yards after catch. And we do see it quite a bit for him, whether it's a pop pass or a screen or something else that's happening where he makes amazing plays, but he also gets a lot of freebie yards uh, along the way. So I'm happy with how directionally it's working there too. So Mm -hmm. Kevin, just because we have a lot of listeners that are the geeky types or a lot of students that like to apply data science to sports, um, I say this not just because Kate and Adi are on the phone and they run our Wharton Sports Analytics Business Initiative. Um, Do you run like just a big regression model or a machine learning model with a whole, you know, S load of variables and that's what kind of, and then you look at some intercept or residual from that model and that's what you attribute uh, to kind of the unexpected part? Or is it something else that you're doing besides running some big kind of predictive model with, you know, some, let's call it expected points before and after the play. And let's call it 10,000 very interesting X variables that you featured engineer in an interesting way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's some feature engineering there and there's a kind of combining into trying to make it more of an ensemble, but you're right. I mean, that mostly is what it is, is looking at the residuals and the regression there, trying to not only you know, but they're trying to be as play specific and context specific as possible. So for instance, I don't have play by play 
uh, scores, like every single play, what was the open score for the receiver on a particular play. I do have their seasonal score. I do have their routes when they were in a game and running a route on one particular play. And then whether the quarterback, who their quarterback was for that particular play. So I will try to apply that as well as possible. Um, Again, I'm iterating on it quite a bit. I think about version 3.0 here since I kind of developed and moved through it. So I'm sure I'm going to keep on working as it's going forward, but at least the smell test seems okay so far. Tell us about the smell. Let's let's jump up from all the details and tell us in the end, what does it say about the quarterbacks we've been watching this year? And in particular, which quarterbacks jump up as a result of these adjustments, which quarterbacks come down? Yeah, I mean, as you'd expect that most of the top quarterbacks drop down and most and more. Well, not most. I should say the majority of the of the the quarterbacks who have high efficiency drop down and the majority of the quarterbacks who have low efficiency move up. I think that makes sense because, you know, all else being equal. Um, if someone's like, I, I, this is a discussion I used to have with, with Belichick is whether, or Brady, whether they've been lucky in their, in their careers. Um, you know, if you've had extraordinary results, you're more likely to be good. And you're also more likely to be lucky when it comes down to it, uh, all else being equal. So you do end up finding that although Patrick Mahomes does not fall as far because of the receiver adjustment, which I think is interesting. If you look at him year over year, and this is something that I want to explore because I also ran them for 2021 and he falls quite a bit because still having Tyreek Hill he 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 falls quite a bit and isn't quite as high. But I also think he wasn't playing as well last year versus what how he's been playing so far this year. But it is something to think about, you know, can he overcome even what he's supposed to be a downgrade in the receiver core in a way that maybe wasn't being properly accounted for? So that's that's in it. But like I said, near the top, it's Trevor Lawrence who moves up. It's um, well, Sam Darnold, believe it or not, he was almost as high by unadjusted efficiency as Patrick Mahomes was uh, before last week when he finally started having some turnovers. So he moves down a lot. Again, Garoppolo moves down a lot. Brock Purdy moves down a lot. So those are guys who move down. The guys who move up the most are Lawrence, Ryan Tannehill, who's been suffering a lot for receivers and for his blocking. And then Matt Ryan, uh, Matt Stafford are also guys who have jumped up a decent amount there where they haven't been very efficient this year, but it's been a struggle for them um, as far as bad luck. And I think another point that I want to put in here is that it's not just making adjustments. It's also making adjustments for some of the outliers within the bad plays. So for instance, um, Matt Stafford in particular had a lot of fumble or pick sixes that happened to play. So these are like worst, worst case outcomes, massive loss of value there. So I try to also bring in more of like an expected run back number when it comes to even when they are throwing a bad pass, an interception worthy type of pass. Um, you, you're not always going to have the worst case outcome. So a lot of that plays into someone like Stafford moving up. Mm-hmm. I just want to note that one of the virtues of this approach is because a lot of this we might qualitatively expect, but you're able to be much more precise and you're going to come up with a fine ordering as a result of this that we wouldn't be able to do just kind of intuitively. And it reminds me in that way of some of the biomechanic guys talking about being able to watch a batter swing a bat and they can tell maybe he's not opening his hips as much, but then you, you hit him with that camera and you can see exact angle and when and timing. And it just helps. To, sometimes precision is helpful as long as it's legitimate precision. Um, Kevin, really cool. Appreciate that. We'll look forward to version 3.0. This, all of this is iterative. I mean, just the fact that you're using the ESPN's uh, receiver stuff, that's all, you know, that's, that's Brian's like project, Brian Burke's project for 2000, you know, 2021, 2022 was that he'll do another one next year. Everyone's using his passing block 
rush rate, win rate. You know, it's like every year we get these new stats and we don't know how they're going to get used. Here is you pulling in this new stat and refining your quarterback evaluations as a result. Love the iteration. We're going to have to go, but tell us a little bit about what you expect. Maybe not so much from final week of the season, but from the playoffs, teams that you think maybe are going to do better than they look right now, or maybe teams that look better than you think they're going to perform. What do we expect from the postseason based on kind of a number sharp perspective? Well, I mean, it's not the the hottest take here, but uh, my power rankings, at least, which skew a little bit more towards offense and then also give pretty good adjustments up for the Chiefs for strength of schedule, like the Chiefs a lot more, maybe than some others. Uh, I mean, media power rankings, if you want to talk about those, I think have been almost uh, had their hands tied as putting the Eagles in in first place there. A lot of others that are more quantitative have the Bills as number one. But I, I don't know. My, my numbers have been pointing towards the Chiefs being there the entire time. So I'm probably a lot more confident in them. And then, you know, with with everything that's happening with this Bengals-Bills game and um, whether yeah. it'll be played or not and everything else, I mean, if they don't play this game, um, and I know, you know, we never want to focus too much on the the results and snap, but we can't ignore what's going to happen either. If they don't really play this game, it's going to function like a loss for the Bills versus the Chiefs in who's going to get that number one seed. So mm-hmm. that's something to watch. And that alone probably has boosted their Super Bowl odds um, unless they are going to figure out some way to play that game. Or as Shane Jensen always says, by playing one less game, it has to at least double your odds. And that game's <laughs> and that game's at home. So, I mean, you play one. I mean, I'm saying it's. I agree with you, Kevin. We should obviously focus on the player's health, but not playing the game is like a loss and it will have a huge advantage for the Chiefs. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think they're one that, that I would point to. Uh, I mean, the 49ers would have been one that I would have pointed to in the NFC, but I think that they've been they've been kind of moved up quite a bit in people's minds over the last few weeks, especially defensively. Although I guess as Jared Stidham is the one quarterback who they can't stop. But beyond that, they look so good defensively for a while that um, they were just at another level when, when, as far as that's concerned. Uh, And maybe I didn't believe quite as much in the Eagles as some other, only because they have this, the softest schedule in, in the NFL so far this season, although things are getting a little bit muddled now with Gardner Minshew playing uh, playing really great against the Cowboys and then being a pretty poor effort last week. So I think we'll see Jalen Hurts best back this week, which is really interesting that they've had to bring him back because they needed to, you know, lose out and then have someone like the 49ers win out in order to, in order to lose that number one seed. And now that that's a possibility, they have to make sure they win this week. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, plenty of interesting storylines to watch this week and into the postseason. Thank you for your insight there, Kevin. And thanks for the time, man. Glad to get some time hanging out with you. Love hearing about what you're working on. Wish you the best with all of it. And we'll talk with you again down the road. Okay. Appreciate everything. Thanks, guys. You bet. Kevin Cole, author and host of the Unexpected Points newsletter, the Unexpected Points podcast, and a terrific follow on Twitter. Encourage you guys to chase him down if you haven't already. That has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the fourth quarter, we have done our two interviews for the week. So we're going to do another open segments quarter. This is old school, guys. This is the way we did the show for most of the first, whatever it was, five years. We did open segments Q1 and Q4, bookending a couple of interviews. I kind of like it. Curious what y'all want to talk about coming out of the conversation with Kevin Cole. The obvious thing to talk about is NFL. We've got a week left in the regular season. We've got 
playoffs less than two weeks away. Very good fun. A few storylines still to play out. And what's caught your eye around the world of NFL? What has caught your eye? Well, Eric, do you want to talk about the Bucks, or do you want me to? <laughs> well, I, I do want to talk about the Bucks, but I think and and Tom Brady's performance. But I think we also have to talk just briefly about what happened on the field last night, which was just a terrible health tragedy, um, where you know uh, Demar Hamlin got you know hit at, at from what we know there was no health history. And literally, from what I've understood, listening to neurosurgeons and heart surgeons and everything else, you know, anybody that takes a blunt force trauma into the chest at just the right time and just the right millisecond can have, you know, cardiac fibrillation, which is what happened uh, to the to the Bills player. And um, it was just shocking what happened. I mean, we've all seen, you know, I don't know how many hours of football I've seen, how many plays I've seen, and the play didn't look like anything strange happened on the play, nor excessive force. Um, and, uh, you know, it's something that just, it, it just was something interesting and shocking in the intersection between if you'd like health and sports and not your normal type of thing you'd see on the football field. And yeah, so first, a, first it, I know all of our thoughts go out to the player's health. And then, but we are people that also, and, and I think that's where our first, second, and third, third thoughts go. And then the second question is like, what do you do now? Because you're near the end of the season. You know, you, you they're, they're not obviously playing the game today or we'd know about them playing the game today. If you play it tomorrow, then you have a three-day break. They've already ruled out that they're playing this week. Okay, so they're not playing this week. So you could push everything back. You could play this game, you know, the following week or, you know, and then, you know, there's two weeks before the Super Bowl. But then, of course, you're pushing other things back. And now it, there's I, a huge ripple effect and impact. I think if they were to play it, it's much more likely that they would just play this last week as scheduled. The week set, week 18 is scheduled. And at most they'd have this game as the solo game. Like if they did push back the playoffs in the week 19. No, that's what I meant, Kate, uh, Shane. Oh, I meant yeah, that they I, would you were then, about, like, instead you, of wild you, you card like weekend. Pushing back no, no, the entire no, no, no. Instead yeah. of wild card weekend, though, you yeah. have to have this game played. Yeah, that's right. Instead of wild card weekend, which, by the way, just would have a tremendous impact, not just on whether these stadiums are free or anything else, but it changes no the whole dynamic of the season. Well, I, I don't no think way. they play the game. I don't think if those are the alternatives, I don't, I don't think they play the game. Yeah, yeah so that has, year, that, that that has uh, a lot of competitive impact to not play the game as well. I mean, well, so. bad trade-offs everywhere, but that's just the way it goes. And they're going to, they're going to, well, but, but I mean, Kate, 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 you're sort of ruling this out just because of people's travel schedule or something like that for the playoff games because they could push that back they have i mean that's they have that extra week in there oh just only have a one-week super bowl thing yeah. I, I don't know they, they 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 used to play one-week super bowl and they decided against it for some reason well, I I, I, like again negative trade-offs making... no matter what you do Cade. Right? well let's just talk but... about let's talk about from a <laughs> statistical perspective or you know I'll, I'll you know Cade, for eight and a half years you've been my um heart and soul on focusing on uh you know playoff design is there anything to do here that would actually be what a statistician or a game theorist or would mm-hmm. call a fair thing to do? Like in some sense, mm-hmm. by not playing the game, as you know, uh, we just talked about with Kevin, in some sense, that's like a loss for the Bengals. And, well, let's and be the Bills. explicit about that. It's essentially a tie, which is going to give them a half a game. It's going to keep them a yeah, half I mean, a game. Any, any, 
a tie basically gives the number one seed to Kansas City. Correct. And it has an impact on, of course, the Bengals and their potential. Because let's say they had lost the game, although they were winning. Let's say they lost the game. The Ravens play the Bengals this weekend, and the Ravens could still win the division. Because yeah. if they win the game. So this has a huge impact on two things. And so I don't even know what to do that would be fair. It, whatever fair would mean. Like you could compute, given the current situation it, in the game. Let's just yeah. play it out for just one second. He, yeah, given here's the a, current situation in the game, what's the win probability? Can you construct oh, some no, they sort would of... No, there's no, there's nothing you can do. No, 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 no. I mean, they definitely... I think the only way they would sort of not play the game was to be given a tie or give it kind of a no like they could just pretend the game never even started and just compute yeah. all the winning percent like the schedule they don't you, you they don't even have to assign a tie technically they could just it's a non-game type of thing right yeah because i mean yeah. you know the that's, seating goes by right. win percentage and all that stuff that, that's it's that that, seems that's the only way obvious. they could do it yeah i, I just seem like that's the obvious or they could make the bills thing. and 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 uh you know uh bills and Bengals. Yeah, there's, there's no other way to do. I, I think pushing it back or pushing back the playoffs or uh, a week or uh, giving them uh, no record is the only two outcomes. Neither of which are, is particularly satisfying, obviously. Guys, I had heard that the NFL um, actually wanted to play continue the game, but it was the players who who stopped that. Is is that true or is that? Uh, I don't think no, so. No, I don't think so. There's been no. I think that was the rumor at the time, Adi, because they didn't mm-hmm. immediately call the game. But I don't think so. I mean, the only statement I've heard, official statement I've heard, is from Troy Vincent, former player, now the head of the, you know, works for the NFL, who said they never really, they never considered, it was never discussed to continue playing that game. Yeah, I mean, I've heard that, like, there was a delay, of course, like an hour, just so they could get kind of the logistics of getting people out of the state. You know, like, the logistics kind of in line for canceling the game. Uh, but no, I, I don't think I don't I don't think it was a particularly I, I, I haven't heard anything about a particularly like antagonistic sort of interaction about whether or not to continue or not. It looked pretty clear that they weren't going to be able to continue. Let me ask a stupid uh, physiological question. People, what's what's his current condition and why does it remain so critical if they were able to, you know, cardiovert or whatever they did to get him out of it? So it's a great quickly. question. So what I heard, I so I I watched a fair amount of CNN and other networks, but uh, Sanjay Gupta is a known, actually been doing a lot of work on COVID on CNN, et cetera, also happens to be a uh, emergency room surgeon. And he mentioned, and a cardiac surgeon and a brain surgeon. And he mentioned that for, uh, he gave this statistic, I don't know if it's true, Kate, but that for every minute your heart is stopped, you lower your chances of recovery by 10%. So his comment was, how quickly, he wasn't criticizing at all. He was uh, supporting them. How quickly were they able to restart his heart? We didn't see that. How quickly were the paramedics able to do CPR immediately and, and you, know, uh, you know, put the paddles on him and get his heart right? Was it a minute versus three minutes? And he goes, that could be the difference between he gets fully recovered and not. And he also said, most people confuse the idea of a heart attack versus this, which is cardiac arrest. This isn't a heart attack. His heart stopped. It basically stopped pumping. It just kind of shivered. And so his comment was, if they what, could know so, the time. Yeah, sorry. What what would be the canonical heart attack then? What would a heart be attack the- would be a death of some part of the actual tissue in the heart. So part of the heart actually 
dies. The tissue dies. This no part of his because heart it loses we know blood. of it loses exactly. Blood, but the rest is still there. correct. Okay, got it. But in exact great point. Yeah, in this case that wasn't true. Either way, my point is is that that's why it's so critical to know. And they even mentioned something about you know cooling the body down to leave it an opportunity to heal and all of this kind of stuff. Um, but I, I think it'll be fascinating. I think Shane, you're right. Um, once I hope the first 10 thoughts that come to everybody's mind is the health of this player and also the safety of future players. And then after those 10 thoughts, there will never be a satisfying answer from a statistical point of view that will be seen as fair by everybody. If you're a Bengals fan, if you're a Ravens fan, you're like, you've taken the opportunity away from us to win the division. If you're a Bills fan, now we can't be the number one seed and we have to play at least one extra game. I don't see anything from a statistical perspective, unless you're going to start flipping weighted coins, which we know they're not going to do. I don't see any way that you do this. And even if you play the game, this is an interesting philosophy. What happens, you know, what's the mentality of these two teams, even if you played this game? Well, I think y'all have, y'all have convinced me that the case for pushing the playoffs, except for the Super Bowl back a week, is more interesting than I thought it was. Um, it does seem extreme, but if you really want to be pure, I mean, mostly I think they need to just, uh, you know, forfeit the game and everyone just deals with it. Like, deal with it. You know, fair, life's unfair. If, you, if you're not at home seed, then... A lot of non-home seeds have done before. So, but, but it's interesting. At least it's a, a reasonable thing to debate. Let's talk about other issues in the NFL. What other, what, what else do you think is kind of the, the big story? we got a couple in the rundown here that seem, but there's a lot of interesting stories. I mean, like the Steelers winning that damn game against the Ravens and Tomlin being back up to like one win away from always having winning seasons is ridiculous given where they were. The Packers, ridiculous given where they were. The Bucks clinch. The Jags. The Jags have been one of the yeah, great stories. That's the story. I, I'd love to well, say it's I mean, the Bucks and Tom Brady. No, too, I'm just but... saying it's look, when you start talking about teams, I mean, obviously someone does no one fears the Jags, but I will say if you start thinking about teams that seem to be on a roll, I don't think anybody wants to play the Packers right now. I don't think anybody's rushing to play the Jags if they get through right now. I can think of a couple other AFC teams I'd rather if I'm the you know, if I'm the Bengals or if I'm the Bills right now, I'd rather play the Dolphins if they're the seventh seed right now than I would rather play the Jags right now. Yeah, so but you if you're a wild card, if you're the number five seed, you'd rather you're you're happy. You you're the wild cards are definitely going for the five seed because they'd rather you'd rather play the Jags than the Bills, Bengals, or Chiefs. Oh, oh sure. no doubt. Right, about so the five it. seed wins from this. <laughs> Certainly, if the Jags make it or if the Titans make it, really. No, no, no but I, 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 I agree with you. And also, I think the other point, I think you brought it up last week, Shane, was the 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 embarrassment of the, in some sense, the quote unquote, 12 and four Vikings now with a minus 19 differential yeah. where, you know, I don't think I've ever seen anything like that. It happens when you win a lot of close games and you get blown out in a few. Yeah, games. I mean, I, we've seen, we actually I, the, what reminds me of is not that recent. Remember when not pits for the Steelers were like nine and oh to start the season a couple years ago, but didn't yes. actually look all that great and got bounced, I think, in the first round by the Browns. I think this is what the Vikings are. This, this is the Vikings. Uh, yeah, I'm just saying who wouldn't mind playing the Vikings right yeah, now? I mean, I'm just right. thinking about they're what they're locked into the three spot. Yeah, they can't be. They can't definitely be the four. The Bucks are definitely the four. And yeah, eight, yeah, eight. yeah. I think they're so locked into three. So let's say they're the Gi- three. I think it's Giants Vikings basically well, are locked the, in. I'm going to say right now. As a as a Giants guy growing up as a kid, they're my third favorite team. They're one of my favorite. Te- it just happens all Gross. three of my favorite teams are in the NFC, but whatever. Um, 
I'm so happy the Giants are playing the Vikings. I mean, given the other choices of the other top seeds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Reasonable, reasonable. I keep on hoping for them to be better than they are because I, I want Quazy and the analytics world to do well in, for his first year as a GM. But, man, uh, especially against their rival, the Packers, that was not that was not a pretty thing. What about, speaking of your Bucks? what about, Brady Evans, three touchdowns. I mean, the Bucs just won't beautiful. go. Keep on that thinking they're going to I mean, do it. two things I noticed in that game, and it's hard to know, maybe the Panthers had a bad day or whatever, but I don't think, you know, it's, it was um, Mike Evans' first touchdown in 11 weeks. Uh, and, of course, he had three of them yesterday and over 200, on Sunday and over 200 yards. Um, he was open. And I, I just think it's possible. You know, I thought I've been to three of the games in those 11 weeks, and he just wasn't open. So I'm not sure why he was open all of a sudden. And I'm not, and I understand why Brady hit him because he's still the goat. I mean, he had some bad weeks. Brady had some bad weeks, but he can still throw the deep ball. And a couple of his passes to Evans were just beautiful throws, but it was actually, this was to me more of a question of where has Mike Evans been for 10 weeks? Like why hasn't he been open as opposed to Brady? Uh, That was the issue for me, but no, I mean, look, all of a sudden, you can't tell me the Bucs are the four seed. I, I don't know. I mean, can they every other every other year, Brady? He's won the Super Bowl every other year the last four times. Yeah, and can, it's, it's well, an can odd they, year. It's, 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 I know, but, but let me just say, Shane, if you want to talk about a tough path, you're potentially talking about playing the Cowboys in the first round, which is no easy task. Although I will say they did beat them the first week of the season in Dallas. But I understand those were two different teams, but they're still they're playing the Cowboys. Let's say it goes to chalk. Then they're playing potentially the Eagles in round two. And then in round three, they potentially play, let's call it, whoever the two seed is in the, the 49ers. All I'm saying is if Tom Brady, not that he's not the GOAT, Shane, he's the GOAT of all time, of all sports forever. If this sad 8-8, eight 8-9, and 9-8 eight, eight and nine, nine and eight Bucks team beats, if they beat the oh. Cowboys, the Eagles, and the 49ers and go to the Super Bowl and beat the Chiefs or the Bills yeah. – yeah, well, I mean, I mean, greatest I mean, run in the history of the NFL. Greatest run compared to even two years ago. In his first year, he goes through Breeze, yeah. Rodgers, and Mahomes. Yeah, yeah that was good. that was reasonable. Was so. On the road, on the road. All right, it's the greatest the run in the last two years, then, Shane. <laughs> okay, what about the next goat, Brock Purdy? Yeah, I, I, I think it's. I, I mean, obviously, it's. You, you want to be cautious about anybody based on yeah. four games, right? I mean, but. It's a it's been an incredible four games. He's been mm-hmm. unbelievable in the you know I mean I I was just kind of I had a, a look at his stats. Um, he's twelve hundred yards, ten TDs, four interceptions, in, in his first four games as a starter. Okay, so what is your attribution? I well, mean, he I was mean, a great he, coach, Shanahan. Real, great real, coach. I mean, he could not. You could not have fallen into an, a better system. Correct. You know, yes. but. Still, for some, I mean, I, I'm, try, I'm trying to think of somebody that was drafted that low that has had, you know, what, you know, that much success as a quarterback ever. You know, I mean, Brady, Brady obviously, you, you know, is, is kind of, a, but, but, you know, drafted like, you know, I mean, he was, Purdy's been, was drafted even lower than Brady. And I, well, know, Romo, Romo was an undrafted. Romo and Kurt Warner as undrafted. Yeah. But I mean, they, I, I even think that's not a great comparison too, because both Roman Warner, I think, you know, what w- didn't do well in their like, the, you know, their rookie seasons were in like Europe or were like, you know, as, no, as, but, as I, but, but my attribution, my attribution is um, 
is just Shanahan, basically. Yeah. And one, we can't, we don't want to overreact to four games. I mean, my God, we've had entire years mm-hmm. that people have overreacted to, but it does seem to speak well for the quarterback in the system to be that robust to who's who's playing. I and mean, this is the third quarterback that he's had to play this year or intended to play this year. It's remarkable or fourth if he is in any way. It's just can super we all impressive. agree to the following that we always do here's our favorite metric, right? How many teams would it take to get to 50% or something like that? I think this is one of the most uncertain years that I've seen in a long time in the sense that there are at least three teams in the AFC. I, I don't know between the, I mean, maybe I'd put, as Kevin said, maybe I'd put the chiefs slightly ahead. Well, whoever gets the one seeds ahead by your definition, Shane, because of course they have to play one last game, but yeah, in terms of strength buys, of team, in terms of, because of the buy, but in terms of strength of team, I think Bengals are very good. I think the bills are very good. And I think the chiefs are very good. I think in the NFC, I could see the 49ers winning. I could see the Cowboys winning. I could see the Eagles winning. Uh, yeah, I think those six teams, like six teams gives, uh, I, I would, I would, I would say those six teams are about 80% of my probability. At least. Okay, but I'm just saying, though, but this is back to the thing. But if I told you that you get to pick one NFC team and one AFC team, what uh, what probability would you oh, get then to it's, that? Yeah, it's much lower. I, that's I, what yeah, I'm, that's all I'm referring to. I'm not saying we can't pick. Yeah, I mean, I'm, among those six teams, I think it's almost one in six for me who wins the Super Bowl. You, you think that highly of the Cowboys? You put the Cowboys on the same footing as we listed the Bills and the Chiefs? Because they have to play each other on the AFC side. I'm just less convinced. I'm also less convinced by the Eagles. I don't know. I think there's a big four. Yeah, I mean, um, maybe the, the Chiefs and Bills I might put slightly higher, but, you know, it, I'm not not much higher, I don't think. I, I don't think I'd really go from – Well, the big the, – Eric's first point is is a great one. It's just a little more open this year, more mm-hmm. contenders, um, which is, which is going to make for a, a fun postseason. All right, gents, that has been another Wharton Moneyball, another two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM for the whole crew, all of whom have been here in this final open segment quarter. Eric Bradlow, Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen. This has been Cade Massey for Matty Dats, the boss man for Deion Simpkins, the associate boss man. Appreciate y'all listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. Enjoy your sports.